weight is a huge aspect of parenting. As soon as our baby is born, we are wondering if they're getting enough milk. Then when they start eating solids, we wonder if they're getting enough food and enough nutrients. Once they are toddlers and preschoolers, we often have to deal with picky eater syndrome. Then there are the stresses around school lunches, and do we make them eat everything on their plate? Eventually, we experience teenagers eating us out of house and home. As our children grow up, there are often stresses over what they are eating, how much they are eating, and when they are eating. During the teen years, health issues around food and body image can also surface. There can be a variety of diet fads or dietary restrictions they self-impose that may not match what the rest of the family is eating. Yes, there can be a lot of parenting challenges involving food. In this podcast, I'm going to offer some general tips on raising your kids to have a healthy emotional and mental relationship with food for optimal physical health. Need some tips on healthy eating habits, as well as how to encourage your children to have a healthy relationship with food? Then you will want to stay tuned and listen in to today's podcast on Awakened Parenting. Welcome to the Awakened Parenting Podcast. I'm a mother of four who are now 13, 16, 19, and 21. Being a mother is no doubt the most challenging job I've experienced in my life. At the same time, it is by far the most rewarding. No matter what the age and stage my children are in, there are constant challenges that I can either be a victim to, or I can use the challenges to learn and grow as a human being. There is a gift in every challenge that presents itself if I'm open and willing to receive it. After 21 years of being a mother, I decided to channel my passion and learning into being a parenting consultant. I host a parenting group on Facebook called Awaken Parenting. Be sure to check it out and join in so you too can take advantage of my regular free tips for parents. Recently in one of my posts, I asked parents what topic they would like to hear about in future podcasts. One of the requests was about addressing how to avoid raising overweight children and how to foster a healthy relationship with food. I was excited to see this suggestion, as this is a topic I have spent a lot of time addressing as a parent. I've been very passionate about doing all I can to raise healthy kids that have a healthy relationship with food. I want to first begin with a bit of a prologue here. My hope is that these tips are helpful and get you thinking about the relationship you have around food and the relationship you foster for your children around food. I want to stress that these are tips and guidelines that don't guarantee your children will develop a healthy relationship with food into adulthood. There are many variables that can foster or impede a healthy food relationship outside of the scope of what I'm sharing today. However, today's tips will definitely assist you and your children in doing all you can to create a healthy lifestyle and perceptions around food. As parents, we must remember that all we can do is the best we can do while they're living in our home. As they approach adulthood and leave home, we need to surrender many things, like regulating or coaching them on what they're eating and their lifestyle habits. By the time they are leaving our homes, All we can do is continue to be a positive role model 
as well as provide healthy foods when they are living with us in the hope that they will make healthy food choices once they are out on their own. Since my kids were young, I made a point of teaching them how to have a healthy relationship with food. Where did I begin? Myself. I knew it would be unrealistic for me to enforce rules or encourage behaviors around healthy eating if I was first not doing what I wanted them to do. I was already on a path to creating healthy lifestyle habits when my oldest was born. I remember when she was a newborn making a promise to myself that nothing would change. I would not change my healthy lifestyle because I was a mom. I would welcome my children into our lives with an attitude of, this is how we live and this is what we eat, so join in. That meant feeding my kids what we ate, not making kids meals or making them something separate from what the adults were eating. That also meant the adults needed to be eating healthy enough that I could feel comfortable mushing up whatever we were eating for the baby in the high chair or cut into little pieces for the toddler or preschooler in the booster seat. When they were little, I would tell them about food groups and what foods had lots of vitamins and nutrients for our bodies and which ones did not have that much or were even harmful to our bodies if we consumed them too much or too often. I would share which ones had lots of sugar and which ones didn't. I would point out which ones we could eat a lot of and which ones we needed to only have once in a while. When my kids were little and through most of elementary school, I had a fairly firm rule that we only eat in the kitchen. This included the adults. No food in bedrooms or in the living room. I had two reasons for this. The first reason was selfishly all about me. When food doesn't leave the kitchen, it really cuts down on cleaning. This means no dirty dishes that need to be returned to the kitchen, no crumbs on the floor or on the sofa, no food stains on the carpet or the furniture. Of course, it is important that rules still allow for flexibility and fun. The exception to this rule was when the kids had a friend over and they wanted to watch a movie. I made the exception of treats in the family room with the agreement they would be doing the cleanup afterwards. Popcorn bowls and cups must be returned to the dishwasher and any food crumbs or kernels needed to be vacuumed. It strongly encouraged them into being pretty neat eaters as barely did the vacuum need to run the next morning. The second reason I created the rule we only eat in the kitchen was the most important reason, to create healthy lifestyle habits. I explained to my kids that one habit many healthy people have is that they tend to only eat at a table. If we tell ourselves, I'm only going to eat at a table with a set amount of food, we are better able to stay conscious over what we're eating and how much we are eating. If we eat on the couch in front of a TV, we could easily find ourselves at the bottom of a chip bag without even realizing it or we could eat a plate full of food without even truly tasting it. This is what I call unconscious eating, and the more we eat unconsciously, the more we are likely to consume many calories, calories often from low-nutrient foods, almost unknowingly. The other problem with eating in front of a TV is what I call eating by association, or what psychologists refer to as classical conditioning. We can create an addictive behavior 
by connecting screens and food. This creates a habit that can be very hard to break. If our children start eating in front of a TV, then they associate TV and food. What does that mean? They turn on a TV and suddenly think they are hungry. They suddenly think they need a snack, even when the body is not hungry. It is similar to Pavlov's dog experiment. Anyone who took first-year psychology in university knows what I'm talking about. During the 1890s, Russian physiologist Ivan Pavlov became known for his work in classical conditioning. His famous experiment involved dogs. He predicted that when food is placed in front of a dog, they will begin to salivate. During his research, he noticed that the dogs would salivate as soon as they heard the researchers' footsteps approaching with food. They associated the footsteps with food. He then tried using other neutral stimuli, like a metronome and a bell. Over time, a neutral stimulus became a conditioned stimulus. In other words, by simply ringing a bell, a dog will not salivate. However, if you associate it with food, you can soon create an association between the two, resulting in a dog salivating by ringing a bell, even with no food present. The same goes for your TV. Over time, simply by turning on the TV, your children, possibly even you, will begin to salivate for snacks like chips, popcorn, or whatever foods you tend to eat in front of a screen. By avoiding combining TV and food, you help your children by avoiding making TV a conditioned stimulus to food. Over the years, I have done my own informal research on people who were overall in good health, especially people in their senior years. I wanted to know what factors contributed to the adults I met or read about who appeared to be in good health and appeared to be living within a healthy body weight. Before I continue, I want to add a side note here. I would not call my research scientific research. I remember during my undergraduate years learning many rules around conducting research, like keeping variables controlled. This is not that kind of research. What I'm about to share are simply common factors I've observed in the people I've spoken to or read about during my adult life who are experiencing good health and living with what most medical professionals would deem a healthy body weight. What are some of the common things I noticed? Let's start with my previous suggestion about only eating at the dinner table. The following are my tips I recommend, which all occur while eating at a table. First, if you are not in the routine of this already, simply making a point of everyone eating at a table is a great start. When we make a point of eating at a table, it invites us to be more conscious of what we are eating, how often and how much we are eating. It even invites us to stop and notice what time of day we are eating. My second suggestion is to involve your children in preparing meals. Even when I had a toddler in diapers, as much as possible, I would invite them to be involved in preparing the meal. Yes, sometimes that meant things took longer as we did some hand-over-hand food preparation, but it was worth it. I used this opportunity to teach them about food, food preparation, 
teaching them about kitchen tools, and then allowing them to practice using the tools safely. Assisting with meals also gave them the opportunity to feel the rewards of contributing to our family's needs. Frequently experiencing a sense of accomplishment and purpose is so important in developing a strong self-image and mental health. On my website, under this podcast audio, I am including a link to a cute video of a three-year-old being allowed to plan and prepare a meal. Yes, it gets a bit messy and may not be the meal you or I would prepare. When I first watched this video, I saw a young boy being able to experience so many firsts, to be given time to think ahead, to reflect on what he forgot or mistakes he made, and then correct them. What incredible learning and self-confidence building, and he is only three. Now my kids are teenagers and young adults, so instead of just helping with meals, they take turns preparing entire meals on their own, or sometimes with a bit of assistance. Yes, occasionally the meal may not be what I would wish for or is lacking in something like vegetables. I just take a deep breath and I'm grateful they prepared a meal. Occasionally, they will express resistance or complaints to preparing a meal as they tell me how busy they are with schoolwork or their jobs. I gently remind them that no matter how busy their lives get, one very important task will be to try to figure out how to make time to not only eat, but eat well. Healthy eating takes some planning, so I tell them to get planning. Think ahead. How will I manage my schoolwork, a job, and make a meal tonight? I assure them that right now they are only managing their own time. If they choose to have a family someday, they will have to find ways to manage not only their time to eat, but other people's time as well. What a wonderful opportunity to practice keeping healthy eating a priority, no matter how hectic their schedules become. My third tip is to start a habit of only allowing water to be the beverage of choice at the dinner table. Placing a water pitcher on the table helps avoid drinking other beverages like juice or pop that are very high in sugar and calories. I remember once even putting pure sugar in a glass so my kids could get a visual of how much sugar some beverages contain. Fruit juices might seem healthy, but the high sugar content often outweighs the minimal vitamin content. It is far better if we get our vitamins directly from fruits and vegetables, unless of course you're using a juicer to create your own pure juice blends. Overall, beverages like juices and pops are considered an occasional drink. Otherwise, I would tell my kids water is not only the best way to quench your thirst, but also a great way to keep your body healthy. I would tell them we use water to keep our bodies clean on the outside and healthy on the inside. My next tip, use mealtime as a way of connecting through conversation. Use food as a way to connect with your children. Sitting together around a table gives everyone a chance to share what is going on within their lives. If you find yourselves at the table in silence, you might want to invite your family members to offer something they're grateful for. The dinner table is a great place to invite a daily practice of gratitude for everyone in your family. When my children were young, I introduced them to something called the dinner question. 
It started off with questions around gratitude. Then I read the book, The Seven Spiritual Laws for Parents by Deepak Chopra. I decided to create questions around each of the seven spiritual laws. I have also come across little decks of cards that I would call conversation starters that tend to have lighter, more simpler questions that are an easy and fun way to introduce conversation to the dinner table. We even do the dinner question when we have company over for dinner. Most people who have sat at our table or tables, yes, sometimes there can be 17 or 18, which means I have to add another table at the end of our kitchen table, know that there will be a dinner question. When we have company, I try to keep the question fairly light. Like, share something you are grateful for, or who can you thank for one item on your plate? It is amazing how many different people were involved in growing, producing, and transporting the food to your plate. I remember a few years ago, when my son was in his early teens. We had company over for dinner, and of course, I offered the dinner question. We were hosting friends we tend to only see once a year around Christmas time. After we all finished the dinner question, one of our guests asked, so do you do this dinner question every night or is this just something you do when you have company? I went to open my mouth to answer, but my son beat me to it. He said, we do this every night with a sound of slight torture. That was an important wake up call to stay more aware of the needs of my family. I began pondering more about how I could better address my son's needs so he felt more comfortable with the dinner question. It was also a good reminder to not be too rigid with rules around food and mealtime. It is important to remain flexible and adaptable as there are many ways to accomplish a well-intended goal. So the next evening at dinner, I decided to say nothing. I decided tonight I would not ask a dinner question. My youngest daughter, Grace, said the blessing, and then I started passing the food. Silence. Suddenly, Grace looked up from her plate and asked with a slightly annoyed voice, so what's the dinner question? I started the dinner question routine when she was a baby, and I realized in that moment that she likely had no memory of a dinner without a question. It made us all chuckle. She appeared lost, like, how could we possibly eat dinner without a question? Clearly, she had a need for a dinner question. So, that is when I introduced the pass option. I offer a question, and anyone who doesn't want to answer just says pass. I must admit, it took a little bit of work for me to accept a pass. I needed to stop asking probing questions to see if maybe they could just answer it a little. As they have gotten older, I have also made the questions less frequent as the conversation seems to come alive on its own. In addition, I have learned to become a little more discreet in how I ask. They might not think I asked a question, but in my own way, I more subtly sneak one in there. My invitation is to remember the goal is using food to facilitate conversation and connection not disconnection or to torture your family members with your own agenda on what you think is the right way to have a dinner. 
As your children get older, you may need to become more creative in how you use dinner time for nourishing not only the body, but the mind and spirit as well. This leads me to my next recommendation. In order to make my previous suggestion work, I strongly encourage that you and your family eat without a screen. That means no TV, laptops, or phones while at the table. This can be challenging if the habit of having screens at the table or having the TV on in the room is already established, so go gently if you choose to make a change. Begin by expressing your concerns and why you have a need for a screenless dinner table. It may take some slow reduction in screen time, like agreed upon set amount of time for the meal to be screenless before everyone can wean off their screens entirely for the duration of the meal. Why screenless meals? As I suggested earlier, if we are eating in front of a screen, chances are we could eat without truly tasting our food. We might be eating faster than usual, and we are missing out on being present with the people who are sitting with us at the same table. Eating without a screen leads me to my sixth dinner table tip. As much as possible, try eating slower to give your stomach the time it needs to tell your brain you are full. This is still a challenge for me. I have heard a few varying reports about how long it takes, but overall, most medical professionals seem to agree that it takes the stomach approximately 20 minutes or so to signal the brain to let you know you are full. Think of how many seconds or thirds we could be eating, not because we are actually hungry, but because we still haven't given ourselves time to truly feel full and know that we have had enough. My next tip is around your children's serving size. As soon as they are old enough to scoop up their own food, encourage your children to serve themselves when at the table or filling their plate buffet style. This is a great way for them to learn portion control. We all know what it feels like after a meal that we've approached with our eyes bigger than our stomachs. If they take two scoops of pasta, for example, you can invite them to stop and feel into their body and ask, am I really that hungry? You might ask something like, do you think you'll be able to eat all of that? If they say yes, okay, great, go ahead. If they don't finish all the pasta, Never punish them or make them finish it. Help them make the connection between their earlier guests and the reality of what they could eat. Celebrate this realization with them. I would often say something like, good to know. It's good to know that two scoops might be too much for you. When they were younger, I might ask in a very sincere way, something like, now, what might you do next time when you were serving yourself pasta? I would say it like I really didn't know the answer and was hoping that they would have an idea. They would often say something like, I think next time it will take just one scoop and then see if I want more. Then if I still be hungry, I will just get more. I would often respond with, that sounds like a great idea. I stress to my children that portion control is not only healthy for your body, but it also helps avoid food waste. They not only need to be more conscious eaters for their own health, but for the health of the planet. So, 
What should you do with the food still on their plate? Perhaps you were raised with having to eat everything off your plate no matter what. I believe the well-intended adults were passing on the tradition of how they were raised. I am guessing the belief that we must finish everything on our plates was a sign of gratitude and to not be wasteful. Our ancestors who grew up in the Depression certainly had every reason to not be wasteful. It simply wasn't an option. The problem with forcing children to finish all the food on their plate is that it creates a habit of overeating. It facilitates a belief that it is more important to eat all the food in front of you than to listen to your own body. It creates a habit of looking outwards to others to decide if you are full rather than going inward to decide if you are full. Many adults who struggle to have a healthy relationship with food report that they were forced to finish their plate as a child even when they were full. So what do we do with the leftover food? Invite your children to pack up their leftovers to heat up later. By putting the leftovers away, we are also saying, this food is still good. It is valuable enough to not waste. It also gives them more incentive and awareness of when they serve themselves. After all, why worry about your food serving if you know whatever you don't eat will just get thrown out? Good food thrown out says to them that being conscious of what we serve ourselves and avoiding food waste is not important. Now, I'm already guessing your next question. What if they don't want to eat their leftovers later? Do they eventually have to eat their leftovers? I strongly suggest avoiding forcing them to eat the leftovers. When they are hungry later, you can invite them to finish their leftovers if they don't want to, just like we often don't want leftover dinner for an evening snack. Then ask them, what is their plan? What are they going to do with their leftovers? The more involved they are with this, the more conscious they become in serving themselves realistic portion sizes to begin with, as they may not want to deal with the dilemma of leftovers. Or they may come up with a great plan, like, I will eat it for lunch tomorrow, or I will pack it on my lunch for school. All that I have mentioned so far occurs right at the table and within your kitchen. But what about the times we need to eat when we are not at a table? For example, snack time. As much as possible, I would still suggest encouraging your children to eat snacks at a table or perhaps sitting at your kitchen island if you have one. Either way, place snacks on a plate or a bowl so that there still is a set serving size. A habit that we can easily fall into is eating right out of the chip bag or standing eating cookies out of the package or perhaps eating crackers out of the box. It is difficult to keep track of how much we are eating if we don't decide upon a set serving so that when we are done eating the snack, we are done. Don't go back for more until you have stopped long enough to go within to find out if you really still are hungry. If you know you're going to be out with your kids and they'll want food, try as much as possible to pack your own snacks. Otherwise, you will likely end up buying fast food, which is costly for your health and your wallet. It can be difficult finding healthy food options when out and about. 
I have heard some people say that packing food takes time. Yes, that's true. However, I have often thought if you had to time me packing snacks versus lining up in a drive-thru, I think I would beat my drive-thru time most days. The main factor that makes packing snacks more successful is ensuring that you are stocking your fridge and cupboards with foods that are easy to pack and ideally healthy. A common trap that can lead to overeating and obesity is emotional eating. To a certain degree, I think we all have had our fair share of emotional eating. In other words, eating not because we are hungry for food, but because we are hungry for something else, like celebration, excitement, comfort, appreciation, or perhaps companionship. In many ways, it is deeply embedded in many areas of our culture. I'm not suggesting that even if you are not hungry, don't eat the cake at the next birthday party or don't go to Dairy Queen after your kid's game or recital. What I am suggesting is simply staying conscious of the patterns and staying aware of the reason you are eating and how much you are eating. When we keep a certain level of awareness, it helps us to not overindulge during special occasions. When your kids are young, and eating within the context of celebration, some light reminders to check in with their bodies or discreet questions will help them to stop and notice how hungry they are, which can help keep serving sizes or seconds and thirds to a minimum. On the opposite side of this coin is eating when experiencing a negative emotion. When parents see their children suffering, there might be a tendency to want to comfort them or minimize or distract their pain with food. Have you ever found yourself serving up an ice cream cone or suggesting we go get a treat when something seems to be going wrong in your child's life? It does have the best of intentions. However, just like Pavlov's dogs, it doesn't take long to create pain and discomfort as the condition stimulus to suddenly being overwhelmed with the need to eat food. Often, food high in fat and calories. Again, the key here is to not make it forbidden to eat out of comfort. It's about bringing awareness to it so your child doesn't fall into an unconscious default mode of needing to eat every time they're upset. Of course, the most powerful key to helping them avoid this trap is role modeling. How do you deal with your painful emotions? Do you turn to food for comfort? If so, it is far more likely they will follow. After all, children tend to only hear a little of what we say and a lot of what we do. Another suggestion I offer to parents is to avoid forbidden foods. I remember when my kids were little, I was pretty determined that I would keep anything I labeled junk food out of the house. I must confess, I had a bit of a drill sergeant, not on my watch attitude. Things like Pop-Tarts and fruit snacks and boil packaging were not considered real food in my books. Foods packed with sugars and other ingredients I could not read, I would refuse to buy. Then one night, when I was hosting my monthly book club, I shared some of my thoughts and rules around some foods in my house. One of the ladies, ever so gently, offered me some words of caution around my sternness. She suggested 
that by making some foods forbidden, that eventually, when my kids get their hands on these foods, they may overindulge or have some resentment towards me for keeping them away. She asked me if the goal was to keep foods away from them or to teach them how to self-regulate when in the presence of these less-than-ideal foods. That question had a profound impact on me. I became more lenient about some of the foods I had labeled not real foods. On occasion, I would buy Pop-Tarts or fruit snacks that contained virtually no fruit and then ask them if they thought we could have these foods in the house and not need to eat them all the time. Rather than labeling them as bad foods or deem them forbidden, they became just occasionally foods. On my website, jillmcpherson.com, I have also included a link below this podcast of a video segment from the TV show Gilmore Girls. It is comical, yet at the same time, there is an underlying powerful message here for parents of what can happen when we become too firm with rules around food. In this case, the forbidden food is Pop-Tarts. But to be honest, you could insert any substance into the story and you could get the same results. Rather than keeping unhealthy food away from children, the ideal is to help them to manage these foods in their lives and in the process develop strong self-regulation skills. Another strategy I used to foster a healthy relationship with food was to take my kids grocery shopping with me. I have heard many parents, moms in particular, say how much running errands like grocery shopping on their own is the only alone time they get. I understand the thought of taking kids with you would take away your sacred and valued time. So here's my invitation. Would it be possible that if you took one child or your children with you to the grocery store, that it might invite you to find other ways to find solitude? Who knows, you might even discover a more rewarding and fulfilling way to experience solitude than grocery shopping. I have also heard parents say that taking their kids shopping with them is painful and often does not go well. Let me assure you, there are strategies that parents can use to ensure shopping goes well for everyone most of the time. I will share my tips on how I grocery shopped on my own effectively with four young children in a future podcast, so stay tuned. So why did I work so hard to take them grocery shopping with me? Well, first of all, most of the time, I was on my own with them and it never really occurred to me that I couldn't take them. Back to one of my points I made at the beginning of this podcast, my mindset was to welcome my children into my life and my routine, and grocery shopping was part of that, so join in. The second reason I wanted to take them with me was because of all the things I wanted to teach them while I was shopping. Yes, once a teacher, always a teacher, I suppose. I see the grocery store as one huge classroom with endless lessons. So what lessons are there to be discovered in a grocery store? What I taught them while shopping varied over the years, depending a lot on their age at the time. When they were very young, it simply started off with naming foods and seeing them point and echo back whatever I said. We could identify colors, letters, and eventually words. 
Then came classifying foods into categories like fruits and vegetables, breads, canned goods, frozen foods, dairy, and meats. I would point out things like the produce section is the healthiest section and how important it was we buy many foods from this section. I would point out that the more packaging a food has, the less healthy it tends to be. As they got older, I would invite them to read labels. I told them that the ingredients are listed from the most to the least amount of food found in the product. So I would often ask them where on the list is sugar. If it was in the top two or three, I would ask them, so what do you think? Should we still get it? In other words, I would start getting them involved in making decisions about what went in the cart. Suddenly, they had to decide between bright, appealing packaging, food that everyone else in their class had in their lunch, versus the high sugar, low nutrient content. Boy, oh boy, at times that was pretty tough. And yes, as a mom, when they were young, I would often still make the call that something unhealthy would not make it into the cart. However, as they got older, I was prepared to accept their decision even if I did not agree. Once in a while, I would even give them the option by saying, you're welcome to buy that item, I am not. It was interesting how if they had to pay for it themselves, it suddenly no longer seemed to be a desperately needed food item. I would teach them to be conscious of marketing strategies like what I called sneaky packaging. I would invite them to look at the weight of packages. Does the larger container always have the most? Aha! I would jokingly speak like a detective announcing that there was no tricking us. We knew what was really going on here. The manufacturer was hoping we would pick their product because it appeared to have more. This would lead to price comparing. For example, which box of granola bars is cheaper based on how many are in each box? They began to realize the cheaper priced box wasn't always the best buy. Of course, money was not the only factor in deciding which products we would purchase. Taste and nutrient value could easily trump the price if it was deemed worth it or within the budget. I pointed out how packaging colors and designs are used to make us want to buy certain items. Kids cereals, for instance, are packaged in colorful boxes with rainbows and happy looking cartoon characters. Grocery stores even have labeled a section of the cereal aisle as kids cereal, which contains high sugar, low nutrient cereals. When my kids wanted me to buy them, I would call them the unhealthy cereals and once again ask them to read the ingredients and then tell me what they thought. Convince me, I would say. I was not interested in spending all my energy telling them why I wasn't going to buy the cereal. I invited them to use all their energy to try to convince me why we should. Sometimes they could make a pretty good case for themselves and some days, not often, but some days I would reward their creative minds by saying, okay, you convinced me. Sometimes even adding in, that was good. You may want to consider being a lawyer when you grow up. Another marketing strategy I would point out is what I called sneaky marketing. 
I would point out words manufacturers put on their packages that makes you think their product is healthy. Words like made with real juice. It may have a few tablespoons of juice in there, but otherwise it's not real juice. Or if the label said fruit beverage or fruit drink, it makes it seem like we're buying real juice because the word fruit is on the label. Not so. Even the words like low in fat, pure, or organic can make us assume we are buying something healthy, but think again. Yes, there is so much to learn while grocery shopping. Reading labels and being an informed consumer contributes greatly to a healthy relationship with food and our overall health. My hope is that this podcast has given you several ideas of the many healthy living habits and information we can teach children around food that will help them lead healthy, vibrant lives. Teaching them skills involving food preparation and preservation, portion control, reducing food waste, creative uses for leftovers, as well as lifestyle habits that support healthy eating, all contributes in a positive way to building a healthy relationship with food. We can help teach them that not only is eating consciously good for our bodies, but it's also good for our planet and often even our bank account. Before I conclude, I do want to add a word of caution here. If your child or teen is already struggling with an unhealthy relationship with food, The tips mentioned in this podcast will likely not be enough to support you and your child at this time. I would encourage you to contact your family doctor for resources or reach out to me through my website at jillmcpherson.com and I will be more than happy to assist you in directing you to the help you need. In addition, I want to add that what I share today are simply ideas and suggestions, not rules. Some days, I find myself not even following my own tips. As a parent, or even in other areas of my life, I tend to avoid rules. Rules tend to have a need for conformity and not take into account all the variables that our children and life offer us every day. Rules tend to come from a belief that everyone must be treated the same. I function more from ideas that lead me to my inner knowing so I can assist my family and myself find ways to get our needs met. That could present in different ways for different children and different ages and stages. I invite you to use my tips and experiences to guide you to your inner wisdom. When you connect to that part of yourself, you will know what to do. And just a reminder, if you're struggling with a parenting issue and are looking for support, please check out my website at jillmcpherson.com for ways I can assist you. I offer one-to-one support as well as an eight-session introductory online parenting workshop, which will start again early in the new year. For those parents who have already taken the introductory course, I offer a four-session follow-up workshop where we dive in more deeply into the skills presented in the introductory course. I'm also in the process of creating additional online workshops that address specific areas of concern 
like toddlers, teenagers, raising confident, self-empowered daughters, and raising sons with heightened empathy and support in finding ways to express and manage their emotions. Got a parenting question? Don't hesitate to contact me at jillmcpersonyes at gmail.com. Until then, join me, Jill McPherson, in awakening to a more loving, peaceful, and compassionate way to parent on Awakened Parenting.